Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything, and I mean anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you want to be a part of the show, you could always give me a call on the listener hotline. It's been quiet recently. That number is 303-832-0217. It goes right to the voicemail, and there you can leave me a message for the program. You can also get me on any of the contact links that are in the description of this show, and I always would appreciate any kind of a uh, um, rate, review, repeat, that kind of thing uh, <laughs> that you can do to support the old program here. Uh, coming up in just a bit, I'm going to have a fascinating conversation, I hope, with uh, Chris Muldrow. From the University of Colorado in Boulder. Now, Chris is a self-proclaimed space nerd, but officially Chris is the Senior Director of Industry Relations at CU Boulder. He's a graduate of the Lockheed Martin Engineering Leadership Development Program. He's a two-time NOVA awardee, the Lockheed Martin's highest employee honor. He's really an official rocket scientist. And so I invited Chris on to talk about what it means to us as we watch these private space flights Over the last week, Jeff Bezos did a flight. Richard Branson's done a flight. Uh, Elon Musk has not taken a flight, but he has sent his SpaceX rockets a bunch of times up to uh, real space and up to the ISS. And so uh, I just want to know what the future of space tourism is and and space travel and and if, if there's any applications to us here on Earth and to transportation in the future with all of this private uh, launching up into the really edge of space, I suppose. Uh, I think they're all interesting questions that I'm sure Chris can easily handle for us. So he'll be coming up here in just a little bit. And, and speaking of space and flight, everyone wants to have a flying car, right? I want a flying car. Well, maybe, a, yeah, I think I do want a flying car. Um, I, I mentioned it last time we were here about the flying car, how it's the next great concept in transportation, even before the private space flights <laughs> are going to be around uh, uh, for all of us, uh, we could see flying cars around for all of us. But it's going to be much more than just a safety hazard when people start getting these things. It's, it's going to be really, really expensive. I'm talking about flying cars more than the space thing. Now, the Pentagon Motor Group ran the numbers. And here's what they found about the cost of a flying car. They say it, it, the average price should come in at around $686,455.43. That's a little outside my price range. Uh, that's that's a house. That's that's a really, really nice house uh, in, in some parts of the country. Now, uh, this, this is what they say. For the Pentagon Motor Group, this is what they say. Although the estimated cost of a flying car is unrealistic for most, you think? It is worth remembering that this is currently a luxury product and that the technology is in its infancy. That from the Pentagon Motor Group marketing chief, Shaquille uh, Hussein, or Shaquille Hussein. He added, similarly, the cost of the first electric cars started high and has slowly started to become more affordable and more widely available. At the moment, most of the flying cars in production have high-end features like retractable wings, a travel range of 600 miles, thanks to generous fuel tanks, and boast two jet engines all coming in a high manufacturing cost. So there's no surprise that it's valued with a hefty price tag. However, in the eyes of a millionaire or billionaire, the cost is not astronomical. <laughs> well, nor is a private space flight, apparently. Um, yeah, you, if you, if you have a, a, a car that can fly, that can go 600 miles. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty good range right there. Uh, retractable wings. You would think it would have some kind of retractable wings. So you don't have wings sticking out of the car while you're driving on the freeway. Um, <laughs> seems like it's a, a prerequisite uh, to have on your flying car because you want to drive it and fly it. That's why they have planes that have non-retractable wings. You have a plane and have a car. Uh, between an estimated $37,000 for a flying license. Wow, it, that can't just be for the license. Maybe that's for pilot training and, and flight school and all that. That's got to be for all that stuff included there, I would think. Uh, $37,000. Uh, $17,000 for insurance. Uh, who's going to insure you, by the way, for a flying car? Can you call up... The good hands people? Is Geico going to insure flying cars? 
Uh, that could be interesting. Uh, nearly $14,000, they say, for parking. Who's, where are you parking? Manhattan? Seriously, San Francisco? Why $14,000 for parking? At approximately $800 in fuel. All right, if you, if you have a tank that can give you 600 miles of range uh, and the cost of fuel right now, but I would think it's just regular fuel unless you have to use Jet A, which is a little bit more expensive. Um, then, yeah, all right, $800 in fuel, fine. Uh, they, they say flying car buyers will spend an additional $69,000 in their first year of ownership, according to the Pentagon Motor Group. So out of the $686,000 for the flying car, they're saying about $69,000 of it is uh, flying license, insurance, parking, and fuel. Um, But your fuel is dependent on how often you fly and where you're going. Um, The flying license is just a one-time thing, right? So is buying the thing. And then where do you get it maintained? Uh, It's not like you can go over to your local uh, Jiffy Lube and go get the oil changed on it, right? I mean, does and, and how is it propelled down the road? Um, all these are good questions that I, I would like to have answered sometime. Maybe I'll have somebody else uh, talk about that. But what is much more expensive than air travel or flying cars is space travel or semi-space travel. And this week, the second private space flight reached the upper edge of the atmosphere, enough to be called space. Jeff Bezos and three others blasted off from an East Texas launch pad, spent about 12 minutes off the ground, and returned safely to the Earth. Now, I wanted to know how this and how that Richard Branson flight, also to the lower edge of space, will transform our lives and our transportation. So I invited a real rocket scientist on the show here to talk more about it. It's Chris Muldrow, and he holds a BS in aerospace engineering sciences and an ME in engineering management from the University of Colorado Boulder. After spending 13 years in the aerospace and defense industry, Chris returned home to the University of Colorado Boulder as a senior director of industry relations. Chris is a graduate of the Lockheed Martin Engineering Leadership Development Program and a two-time Nova awardee, Lockheed Martin's highest employee honor. Chris, thank you so much for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Hey, hi, Jason. Uh, thanks for having me on today. It's a pleasure being with you today. So before we get into what all this means to us, to transportation, to our general lives, let's get your impression of what you saw. What were your overall impressions of the flight? Yeah, it was uh, it was really fun to watch that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a through and through space nerd right and so and not not just space but also um all things aeronautics as well right so kind of hitting both the aero side and the space side um but watching the space flight with blue origin and getting the new shepherd capsule up there uh to the edge of space uh it, it just inside it kind of gives gives those tingly feelings and just excitement right um you know i remember as a young kid growing up in my love when my love for aerospace developed um, you know, and kind of that feeling and excitement and, and watching these flights kind of, you know, brings it back to those childhood memories of that excitement. Um, but it also excites me, you know, personally, but also it really excites me how the public is getting more energized in space travel again. You know, we've had, we had about a decade or so there um, when NASA last uh, launched astronauts from U.S. soil uh, up until the point where we were able to launch astronauts again uh, last year uh, from the U.S., Right, and so we had a, quite a bit of time there where, you know, space really wasn't in the public eye very much, and so that was really exciting for me is to see the the media coverage and the excitement and you know people getting energized about space again. Right, you know, for me it's been a lifelong love, uh, but to be able to share that love with you know with my friends and family, my daughters, and and you know in the public in general right now has been a lot of fun and you know certainly something I love talking about. And th- and there is a difference between this space flight, the one with Jeff Bezos, and the space yep. flight that we had with Richard Branson, because they were really different technologies. One was dropped from an aircraft and then rocketed up there to the lower edge of space, and then this one with Bezos was a traditional, what looked like a traditional rocket with a capsule on top that jetted up there and uh, just kind of uh, hang out for a little bit and then <laughs> fell back to Earth. So so what are the differences? Are there different applications that we can get this kind of space flight? Yeah, Jason, you're spot on, right? If, if For those who watched the, the Virgin Galactic flight with Branson and then watched this morning with Blue Origin and, and Bezos, uh, two totally different kind of approaches and solutions to getting to humans into space. Um, you know, both, neither one of these flights, though, reached orbital flight, you know, space flight. It takes 
more altitude and, and more speed to get to that point. Um, but you know, ultimately, if you if you're an astronaut on board one of these flights, um, you know, as you're getting towards the edge of space and hitting the kind of the top of the top of the arc during your space flight and coming back down, both flights experience the exact same thing, right? They, they, they get up to this point in altitude, uh, both of them experience microgravity and, and kind of feels what it's like to, you know, float, quote, float in space. Um, you know, so that I think, you know, for me, kind of the application wise, you know, two totally different solutions, but ultimately all those astronauts on board of both flights got to experience weightlessness, got to be in space uh, for a short period of time there and all earned their astronaut wings in doing so. Really, um, yeah, but, but before yeah. we move on, Chris, it, honestly, yeah. c- should we really call them astronauts? I mean, seriously. I mean, they were, they look, they were on the edge for a few minutes. I think the requirements right? might need to be adjusted here to, to, to be called an astronaut. I mean, I, I, I right? wouldn't call them an astronaut. They're, I mean, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole nother debate, right? And that's a whole nother show. We'll have to hit I mean, you're calling, that, a, you know you're calling them astronauts. I'm not ready to call them an astronaut right. quite yet, but, yeah. you know. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so that, that's certainly a debate, right? I know, you know, Neil deGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson, among others, were out there talking about this. And I think Neil actually said that neither one of these flights, you know, should count as getting into space. Um, you know, and it's funny, you talk to engineers, you talk to astronomers, you talk to uh, Earth scientists, right? You talk to a whole spectrum of people have anything to do with, you know, kind of Earth to space um, spectrum, right? And everyone kind of has their own opinions, and you can really define it different ways. Um, I guess what I'm going off of is, you know, NASA actually defines it as 50 miles. If you get to an altitude of 50 miles, that's the edge of space for as far as NASA is concerned. Um, and which is a little bit different than the international body that defines it at 100 kilometers or about 62 miles. But, you know, for me, it's I'm less I'm less interested in the debate of are they astronauts? Are they not? Do they get to space? Do they not? It's it's really it's you know to put we're pushing in pushing the envelope of of space tourism and we're really on this precipice right now where you know these flights that we're starting to see they're going to continue to push up to higher altitudes to more orbital flights right and so we're going we're to see this evolution uh really where space tourism is going to start you know growing even more from this point in time i really look at this as this inflection point where we can look back to to july of, of 2021 and say you know what this is when space tourism really took off I'm speaking to Chris Muldrow from the University of Colorado about the Jeff Bezos space flight as well as the Richard Branson space flight and what it means to you and me. Do you think, Chris, that it's the problem to go higher? If they do go any higher, they'll start to experience that heat of reentry. Is it? Do they need a different vehicle then at that point or different engineering to go to a higher level? Uh, yeah, great question. Kind of goes back to again before, but different the different solutions. You know, when we, we saw the, the the rocket plane, right, the Virgin Galactic rocket plane with Branson, we saw the kind of traditional rocket and capsule with with Bezos and, and Blue Origin. You know, getting you know, it, both of them took rocket motors to get up to the, that altitude that they reached to. Um, but even at that altitude, you know, it being a suborbital flight. They still experience uh, heat and aerodynamic differences of reentry, right? It's certainly not as fast or as hot as something coming back from lower Earth orbit or even a lunar uh, orbit, right? Those those are going to experience certainly much uh, much more uh, higher speeds, and then also that translates into higher higher temperatures and energies as you're coming back into the atmosphere. But certainly what, we, what this is doing, right, these are stepping stones, right? These flights that we see, it's, it's proving out the technologies. And it's taken years for these companies to get to that point where they're ready to do these suborbital flights. But this is certainly not going to be the end. But these, this, these, these flights here really give them data points and information on, you know, what went well. What maybe there, there might have been things that didn't necessarily go perfectly nominal. But the data that the teams are going to get from that, they're going to continue to learn. And so certainly I think every single one of these flights is another um, kind of point along those stepping stones of proving out the technologies, proving out the different solutions. Uh, you know, it's going to show maybe one solution becomes a better solution to get, you know, to people into space for the future of space tourism at some point. Um, but I really look at, um, you know, each one's going to learn different things. And I really don't think, you know, the way I also look at it is, is I think we're a ways away from one solution winning out over another. Uh, I really think in the future, uh, I, I envision a future where we're going to have different modes of getting people to space. 
you're going to have the traditional rocket capsule type of system. You're going to have the space plane like Virgin Galactic. I think each one of the solutions like these or something that looks like them in the future, um, I think they're all going to have a place in the broader aerospace economy in the future um, industry, you know, economy that we're going to see for space tourism. Um, you, and it's also going to drive different uh, types of experience, but also different price points, right? If, if you know, there, there's people who are talking that maybe in a decade, uh, a space to flight could be as, as low as a couple thousand dollars, right? And that's certainly not the case at this point in time, but if we continue to prove these sol solutions out and these systems out uh, and getting flights where it's regularly enough, almost kind of like commercial aviation, uh, you know, that that's the type of stuff that's going to bring those cost curves down and and uh, we're going to see, you know, certainly going to see people going to space more and more in the next decade here. Do you think one of these applications right now is safer than the other one? That's a good question. Um, you know, we, when I say we, right, the aerospace industry and the history of aerospace uh, has, um, you know, pretty deep knowledge in both of these types of solutions. You know, if you, if you look back at the traditional kind of rocket capsule design, Right, that goes back to the the 50s. You know, you know, even launching rockets, right, or, or decades before that. You know, but certainly we saw the first time where we're getting serious about putting people into space on board a rocket capsule system. Back in the late 50s, uh, the Russians, um, you know, they put someone, you know, people into space um, on their systems. We put people into space on the Mercury uh, during during the Mercury program. Um, you know, we have data, decades of data there, but. You know, for a lot of people, they might look at the Virgin Galactic solution where you have this big, huge airplane that carries this rocket plane up to about 50,000 feet in altitude, drops that rocket plane from the belly, and then it fires its rocket engine to go up into space. That solution has also been around for decades. Um, the very first time that any human broke the sound barrier was, was Chuck Yeager in the Bell X-1 uh, back in the late 40s. That was the exact same type of kind of system design um, as we saw with the Virgin Galactic, right? And so so I, I kind of take that trip through history and saying that, you know, we have experience in both these types of designs. And I don't think, and, and from that regard, and talking about safety, right, um, you know, there, there certainly have been, um, you know, certainly been tragic accidents that have occurred in both types of systems and both types of approaches. Um, you know, the, and unfortunately, you know, people have lost their lives um, during those endeavors. Um, but as far as inherent safety, it, it really depends upon the mission and what you're doing. But where these two solutions are heading right now, I think they're, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say one's safer than the other. Um, I personally, I would strap on either one of those right now, right? Um, you know, we saw Blue Origin had the auction for the fourth seat on the flight they had this morning. Uh, and the winning bid for that was $28 million. You know, I'm certainly not uh, affording 20, a $20 million space flight anytime real soon here. Um, but I personally would have no issues strapping into either one of those systems right now uh, to take that trip to space. But what would happen and how much of a setback do you think it would be if someone lost their life? If there was an accident, if we watched Jeff Bezos and his brother and, and yeah. the other two that were on that rocket watch it blow up like we saw a couple of the... Uh, um, you know the uh, Elon Musk rockets blow up when when he was doing yep. the testing. Yeah, um, it, it certainly be a big setback. You know, it's in something like that. It, it's certainly going to grab a lot of media attention. There's going to be you know, a lot of kind of scrutiny on you know what what went what went wrong. You know, where is the flaw in the system? Were there multiple flaws? Was it a chain reaction event? Right. Um, I, I do think it would be a setback. Um, I don't think it would be a crippling setback. Um, to where we're we're eventually going as a humanity and in, in pushing further into space, uh, I think I think that's going to happen. Um, but as we you know as we saw with the Columbia uh, space shuttle accident in in 2003, right? It, it took several years before NASA um, in in its industry um, in, in the public we got back into space flight with the shuttle, right? It was it was three years from the Columbia accident to the next space shuttle flight. Uh, and, you know, so I certainly think we would see something similar to that if something were to happen with someone on board today, uh, one of these one of these types of flights. I do think there would be, a, you know, probably a multi-year setback for that particular system or solution. Um, I, I don't think it would be a crippling one necessarily, but I think I, I do believe we would, uh, you know, the companies and the public, we would push forward and, and figure out what what happened, what went wrong, fix it iterate the system, uh, become better and safer for the next space flights after that. Maybe similarly 
to the autonomous vehicle tests that we've seen where where some have unfortunately killed people and we've seen mm-hmm. also the the uh, uh, all the Tesla crashes and and issues they've yeah. had with some of the autonomous features in, in the Tesla so so maybe something like yeah. that where you take a couple steps forward a couple steps back and then you keep marching forward yeah uh, I think that would be you know for me that's what I would think is would kind of be a realistic path forward after something like that absolutely is yeah the, those steps back are needed uh, yeah, figure out what happened, take the time to do it, do it right. And then, you know, uh, re-engineer those solutions so that they can uh, become safer for the, the future, um, people to fly on those systems. I'm speaking with Chris Muldrow from the University of Colorado. We're talking about the Richard Branson, the Jeff Bezos, space flights, what it means to all of us, you and me. Uh, there has been talk in the aircraft industry, especially that if they can use high altitude flights, they could go farther across the globe easier and more efficiently. I, I, I don't think it'd be worth it to go from Boston to Atlanta, but maybe New York to Sydney, um, yeah. you could get there in much less time than it takes right now. It, that's probably, I would think, attractive to, to many businesses. Is, are, are these types of vehicles, especially maybe the Branson one, leading to something like that? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Um, yeah, can you imagine going from New York to Sydney in less than 90 minutes? Oh, it'd like, be great. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, what that opens up for, for the global economy and, and, you know, travel and vacation and everything else, right? Um, you know, a lot a lot of, you know, really cool solutions. And I, I do think the technology, I don't think, I, I must say, I do know that the technologies that these systems are developing and, and we're continuing to push, it's heading towards that type of future, Right, where you can launch um, on a on a some sort of rocket, gets you up into you know suborbital or really really high altitudes, and you come back down to something like that. Right, so certainly the Virgin Galactic with the space plane, you know, you didn't have to have a um, you know, a, a rocket pad and a and a you know landing place that kind of stuff, um, you know, specially designed for the Virgin Galactic system. Right, it took off on an airplane on a traditional runway, it went up to altitude fired the rocket, went to space, came back and glided down, much like the space shuttle did as a you know, kind of a, a gliding body, right back down to this exact same airstrip, right? And that's only because that's the, the path that they took for that. But you can certainly do that exact same flight, and you could land hundreds and thousands of miles away uh, to a different airstrip and land right, right, on, right, on, right on a, uh, a runway, just like you would in, in a commercial airplane. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a hyperloop in the air where you could – Literally, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, go from place to place. I, I still think the Hyperloop yeah. is great technology because, yep. it, let's say, I, I could travel at five or six or seven hundred miles an hour, and not just—I think it's one. It, it would be revolutionary for cargo, getting cargo across the country. But let's say I could jump on the Hyperloop from downtown Denver and get to Las Vegas in a half an hour. That then it then it opens up a whole weekend for us. I mean, you know, it, it does, right? Yeah, and so this this v- could Vegas be, would really like that for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. They would, <laughs> but it it almost opens up the airways to to be like that, where where you could go anywhere in just a couple of hours, and it opens up travel to to, to even more people. Maybe it does absolutely, you know. And let me also bring it kind of back home here to Colorado, if I may. Um, you know, a lot of people not, might not realize, but we actually have a spaceport in Colorado, a certified spaceport right here in Colorado today. Um, you know, the, the Virgin Galactic flight with, with Richard Branson and his, and his crew uh, last week, they flew out of uh, Spaceport America, which is an air and spaceport in, in New Mexico. Uh, but a lot of people might not realize here in, in Colorado in the area that we actually have the Colorado air and spaceport right here in Adams County. Um, and it is a certified spaceport. And what that means is just like an airport, right? A certified spaceport means it is certified as a facility where uh, space flights can take place from. And, and the folks out there um, at, at the Colorado Air and Spaceport, they're working with partners and bringing you know, solutions like we saw with the Virgin Galactic flight to right here to Colorado. Um, you know, there's, there's a number of companies that are working on, you know, Virgin Galactic, they've flown, right? They've put uh, a crew into space, you know, back to that debate. We'll have that debate, right? But they, they took a crew up above 50, 50 miles altitude. Um, I think, you know, within the next decade, absolutely, but I even think within the next couple of years, we're going to see something very similar out here right out of Colorado. And I think we're going to be watching, you know, all of us in the, in the front range, we're going to be watching space planes take off, take people to space, and come right back here to Colorado. 
And, and that leads me to to other places are going to want this too. It's not just in West Texas where there's a lot of open land, or out in Arizona where we've seen some of the other flights, or or even Cape Canaveral where they were. Elon Musk is sending up all his SpaceX stuff. Uh, we could really mm-hmm. see this spread out around the country. And then not only does it help those local communities, then you have the local businesses. And I'm sure there's a lot of businesses, a lot of corporations that are ready to jump on board and, and spend a lot of money uh, <laughs> getting, on, getting, in these, getting in these vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's part of the future. Right? When, I, when, I, when I envision the future... Um, what you just mentioned is exactly what I think is going to happen eventually. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready to, you know, stamp a timeline on that exactly when, when I believe that's going to happen, but I absolutely do believe that's part of the future. Um, you know, and one of the things, and, and when I've talked about, you know, what we're seeing right now with these commercial space flights and, and space tourism really starting to, you know, this is kind of the birth of space tourism almost, um, is I actually started liking it back to the post World War II area. Uh, sorry, post World War II era, when commercial aviation really started to take off. Right, you know, pun intended, maybe not intended, but uh, you know, we really saw we really saw after World War II is when commercial aviation really became more ubiquitous across the nation, across the globe. And one of the things that ended up doing, and this is actually one of the challenges we're going to we're going to face here in the near future with space flight. Uh, in commercial space flight is when there became so much commercial aviation after World War II, the FAA, the Federal uh, Aviation Administration, actually was not created until several years after World War II, and there was already becoming a lot more commercial aviation going on above our skies. And that expansion of commercial aviation actually drove the creation of FAA to help regulate our airspace over the U.S. and making sure that it can stay safe. We're going to see a very similar thing here, and I, you know, I think this is something I'm kind of, you know, that we are certainly talking about uh, here at CU Boulder in our aerospace department is uh, space traffic management. So you might start here in this, uh, you know, this acronym STM, space traffic management, um, not totally different than ATC or air traffic control. And there's, you know, we continue to see commercial space flights like these, and we continue to see the expansion of where you can take a space craft or take a space flight from, like we mentioned, right? Come, you know, just drive to your local spaceport and take a flight. Um, we're going to see where this, this need for space traffic management is really growing, right? And this is going to become a another part to the kind of the larger national and international transportation discussions is how do we effectively and safely manage spaceflight? You know, you know, there's a lot of talk today about orbital debris and all the things that are in space that are potential hazards to other things in space. Right. The more we start putting people into space um, and, and start taking up more, um, you know, suborbital and orbital space, um, you know, area, we're going to have these issues where space traffic management is going to become just as necessary as air traffic control is today, uh, you know, above our skies. And, and not just space management of the vehicles that are, you know, flying around, but I, I've also covered where there are commercial, currently commercial aircraft that might sometimes have to be rerouted around the Kennedy Space Center because yeah. Jeff Bezos is sending, um, or uh, rather Elon Musk is sending uh, aircraft, you know, his rockets up yeah. in the in the sky. So you have to have a, a management of, if you, if you have a bunch of spaceports, how they're going to react with uh, regular air traffic, and then obviously the traffic up in the lower atmosphere as well. Yeah, you're, you're spot on, right? You know, you look at air traffic control today, it's largely from kind of surface level up to 40,000 feet, you know, 45, sometimes uh, 50,000 feet, depending upon the aircraft, right? That's kind of the, the space from, from ground to that altitude of where air traffic control is so critical. You know, yeah, imagine you're going to have to do that same thing with kind of a larger radius around a certain particular area and then up even higher, right? And so, yeah, you are going to, we're, we're going to have a future where uh, spacecraft are flying through the same airspace as commercial aviation um, airplanes, Right and and having to make sure that we are able to control this, and that brings a you know large you know that's a large problem set on how do you effectively manage that, and how do you automate those interactions and you know notifications you know just like airplanes you'll know, have radar and they're interacting with air traffic control saying you know you have an airplane approaching you from this direction you know heads up you know type of stuff making sure that we don't have any bad bad situations occur in the air, uh, you're going to have those types of problems 
you know, with space, with spacecraft as well in the future, and then just compounded by the much more amount of space and and airspace and space space that it's going to take to to manage all these things and and control and make sure everyone stays safe together. I think it was in the movie Total Recall, where it was almost like you showed up to an airport, you get on the spaceship, and then boom, you're up (laughs) to Mars, right? So maybe this is just the infancy of of these shuttles, if you will, that take you to the moon or to maybe a a Marriott or a Hilton or a Holiday Inn Express that's (laughs) circling the globe, you know? <laughs> yeah, it is right, and you know, I I do believe that's that's where we're heading. Uh, it's going to take a while to get to the the total recall type of thing, and hopefully we're you know we're not out on the Martian surface without our suits on anytime soon. But uh, um, you know it, it, it's going to happen, right? Where yeah, you you go you know, buy your ticket and you show up with your phone and your your you know your barcode's right there to, to board and you jump on and you're going to somewhere else, you know, on a spacecraft. You know, I think that that's part of the future. That's where this is heading. And to your point, this is. You know, the, the things we're seeing today are some of the infancy of that future, right? And that's, you know, that's really forward-looking science fiction, right? But the things we're seeing today were science fiction to people 50 years ago, right? And, you know, you've got someone who can, you know, have their own company that then spends 20 years developing a system like this and then goes and flies on it, right? That's, you know, 50 years ago, I'm sure not sure too many people thought about that, or if it was, it was really science fiction, Right, but this is an example, right, where science fiction is becoming science nonfiction, becoming science reality, and and we're certainly headed in that direction. And we're seeing, you know, let me get one step back: is, is space tourism is not brand new, right? The flights we saw this week are not the first space tourism flights. Now there have been space tourist flights, uh, tourism flights for a couple decades now, right? Even back to, you know, like Dennis Tito paid reportedly twenty million dollars to fly on a Russian rocket. Um, you know, to space about 20 years ago or so, 25 years ago, right? And so there's an example where space tourism has been around for a, while, a little while, but there was really kind of a one-off. Like I'm going to buy one seat on a scheduled government flight, right, type of thing. Um, and so that's a little bit different. Well, now we see this next evolution of space tourism where it's an entire crew of four people or an entire crew of six people who are totally commercial, total kind of space tourism going to do that flight, Right, and so this is this next evolution of space tourism, and I think we're going to see that evolution continue over the next several years, next decade, a couple of decades, to where it's going to become much more ubiquitous and uh, accessible by the general population. Do you think it'll be possible sometime in the I don't know how distant future, but uh, maybe you're familiar with the uh, TV series The Expanse, where they have people that went out to the asteroid belt and were basically mining the asteroid belt. Will it be possible to go out and, and either grab these asteroids that have all kinds of minerals that, that we could use here on Earth and, and bring it back? Yeah, so a little, little confession. I have not yet watched The Expanse as a space nerd. That kind of hurts my heart a little bit. <laughs> but uh, I, I can say it is on my watch list, and it's actually the one of the next show up I'm going to be watching here. So, um, you know, but I'm excited to see what, you know, the, the storylines and what they're going to do there. But um, absolutely, you know, you look at, look at some of the challenges we have today with uh, rare earth elements and, and minerals and the things we're trying to access here on Earth. Very difficult to do so, very expensive to do so. Now, there is science that shows... Uh, many asteroids in space where these types of uh, elements and minerals are readily available. And and, and uh, we're actually going to see robotic space mining a very real thing here in the near future, right? So, the, you know, um, there, there's actually companies and, you know, universities are working on these problems, and, and, and a lot of this is happening, you know. Um, I'll throw a little, a little, some props down to my... Uh, my uh, peers down the road, down 93 here in Golden, but, you know, Colorado School of Mines, they also, they have a, a new kind of space mining program that they've developed over the last few years here. And they're looking at how do we send robots um, out into space to asteroids to mine for these, you know, these, these rare earth elements or these difficult to mine uh, elements and, and bring those back for either processing in Earth orbit or bring them back down to the surface for processing here. Right, and be able to do that. And so I think we're going to see first, we're going to see where it's going to be, you know, kind of robotic space mining. Um, but then you are going to see in the future where it could be, you know, people and installations and entire things that go to other other bodies uh, in space to do that type of work and, and utilize those uh, materials uh, for building things either there or bringing them back to Earth or different things there. I think we're certainly going to see that. 
I'm speaking with Chris Muldrow. He is with the University of Colorado up in Boulder, talking about the Richard Branson space flight, the Jeff Bezos space flight, uh, what it all means to you and me. There's been a lot of talk about these guys, obviously, are extremely rich. And I've seen a lot of memes that popped up uh, in the last couple of days between the two flights now of, hey, these, these billionaires are spending all their millions of dollars while the workers are not rep- reaping any benefits. But I, I think that maybe they're looking at it short-sightedly because doesn't it typically take these type of people with the resources to do these things? And, and later on, we will see our... Uh, reward, if you will, uh, as as there will be new technologies, prices will come down. It, it, I mean, it's like one thing to say the price of a 60-inch TV is now 500 bucks compared to $5,000 <laughs> 10 years ago, right? But, uh, I mean, the space yeah. travel prices should come down. We should see maybe new technologies because of what they're spending right now. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, you know, to quote one of those gentlemen who's in, who we're talking about, right, space is hard. Um you know, there, there is talk today about, you know, it's, it's the billionaire space club and, you know, that you have to be, you know, one of the 40 richest people in the world to, to go to space and do this right now. Right. And, and there is some truth to that. And, and the reason why there's truth to that is building the, you know, building a space company and a system that can take people safely to space and bring them back safely. Right. That's, that's not the same as developing an app for your phone. Right. Um, not to say that software developers aren't amazing. They do great things, right? But to develop a, a, an app to put on your phone, you know, software engineering and doing that, it's not a lot of kind of capital intensive um, work to happen there, right? You need, need some really good software engineers who can go code and, and, and build, build these things in the kind of the, the in, in cyberspace essentially, right? To, to develop the infrastructure and the systems and the, the rockets and the planes and, and all these things that take people to space and back safely it requires a lot of capital uh, money up front, right? It takes a lot of time and development to do that. And, and that's largely, you know, why these, the, you know, companies like uh, Virgin Galactic and, and SpaceX and Blue Origin, right? It is, they are owned and largely self-funded by some very rich individuals because it does take a high level of sustained um investment and time to get to the point we, we, we saw today, right? And, and these aren't overnight companies. You know, Blue Origin has been around for, for two decades. You know, SpaceX has been around for nearly the same. The work and everything that built into what's now Virgin Galactic, same thing. It's been around for at least two decades, right? Um, and it takes a lot of sustained investment over that period of time to get to, to the flights we saw here today. Um, you know, even look back at when spaceflight first started, right? You really had, for the most part, you essentially had two countries in the world that were pushing space and, and pushing rocketry and capsule development and keeping people alive in space and bringing them back, right? It took two, two countries during the Cold War to make that happen, right? And the amount of, you know, it, it's billions of dollars. It's a lot of investment over a lot of time to get to that point. And so, you know, that, uh, for me, it really is a requirement to what these companies have done is to have individuals who can fund these, right? Because the government's, you know, government, they, they do compete for government contracts and they're, you know, they're, they are dev- uh, delivering services for the government. But largely, they've been self-funded for most of the the, the lives of these companies. And, and it does take that, that type of effort and investment to make that happen in the persistence, you know, which is something I certainly think we've seen from these individuals involved is, you know, that's, it's, it's a, they show that it's a passion for them and it's, it's something that they want to go do and, 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 and spend some of the resources that they've uh, created in their lifetimes to go do that. What you were just talking about reminded me of maybe another show that, that uh, maybe you've seen called For All Mankind. Uh, where, oh, yeah. yeah that, that, was that's another, why I haven't seen The Expanse. Yeah. <laughs> that was another great one. I was, I was catching up on For All Mankind. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it was two countries, the United States and, and Russia, who were willing to pour as much money as they could get to the space program. Mm-hmm. And, and so since we don't have that kind of... Uh, spending available to do this, we we maybe have to rely on uh, uh, private people who can also, I, I think, maybe do these, uh, make these vehicles and 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 do what they do more efficiently than government. Yeah, it absolutely is right. I think it's it's that's not necessarily going to be the future, right? I think 
the technologies they're developing and and how they're proving we can do these you know, space flights and and how these systems work, right? And and I'm also not convinced that going forward, the the three companies we see doing this today, right, they're really kind of more public doing this today. Um, they're certainly not the only three that are doing similar work. There are others out there as well. Um, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not convinced that these three are going to be the same three. They're going to be around 20 years from now, doing doing spaceflight and taking you know tourists into space and 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 expanding you know that that kind of horizon in space exploration. Um, I think it could be new companies, right? Certainly these companies could be here, but it could also be new entrants. And and as we as we develop the technologies and prove them out, right? It, it it just helps develop those next generation of systems. You know the the work that the companies we see today, right? They didn't just pick up you know a clean sheet design on one of the a rocket and a capsule, and then 20 years later go put people into space on board that, right? They're leveraging the work that the the government, the U.S. government and NASA, and and, and other parts of the government spent for decades, right? They developed rocket technology. They developed capsule technology and how we keep keep people alive in space, right? They, the companies today are in some ways kind of riding the coattails of that technology development and the research and development that was done decades ago now enables these companies to take those technologies and push it further. And I think we're going to see that same thing where these companies now are a part of that pushing it further, right? Certainly NASA is continuing to do that and they're developing systems to push you know, humans even further into space and, and go you know, back to the moon and stay on the moon and go to Mars, other places as well. Um, but these companies are also doing the research and development now that's going to contribute to that kind of global knowledge of spaceflight and, and, and how we get people to space and go do things there and bring them back safely. I'm speaking with Chris Muldrow. He's from the University of Colorado about the Jeff Bezos space flight, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, all these uh, space flights and what it means to you and me. You were just talking about some of the applications that came out of and some of the technologies and, and things we use every day out of the space program from forever ago. And one of them, actually, is uh, lined concrete because concrete is really not porous like asphalt is, so it tends to hold water. Well, when they were landing the uh, shuttles there on concrete mm-hmm. uh, so it could hold the weight of the, of the vehicle— they decided that it was best to use uh, lines in the concrete because it would help displace the water better. So that's why. Mm-hmm. And actually, somebody asked me the other <laughs> a couple weeks ago. <laughs> I have it as a driving you crazy uh, segment coming up soon. Uh, somebody asked me why do they have these lines there in the concrete because it moves them around on uh, while they're driving. And so it really yeah. comes back from the space industry <laughs> that, that, right? yeah. that and, and gives you technology <laughs> that you're driving on right now. So I, I'm sure there's going to be many other inventions that are that are that maybe we could see even right now from what these guys are doing right now. Yeah, it's funny you say that because every time I'm driving south I-25 and I just <laughs> pass 225 and get towards Bellevue, right? Yeah, the, right. The, it, the material changes and it kind of pushes your car around a little bit. I'm spot on. And, um, you, know, th- you know, that's one example. You know, there are hundreds of, of things that have been done in space and developed for space. Um, that you know have then come back and benefited um, all of us, all of us here on Earth. Um, and, and in addition to a lot of a lot of people don't might not realize this. You know, we do have the International Space Station that's still in orbit. There are seven people living on board the International Space Station right now, and you know they're 220 miles up above our heads right now, flying at 17,000 plus miles an hour. Right, but what those human what those individuals do on the space station is science. That the majority of their job on board the space station, the astronauts and the cosmos that are there are to do science. And they are around the clock. Like their two jobs are to keep the space station operating and doing science up there on board. Right? And so there are constantly, all the time, science experiments happening up there. Uh, here at CU Boulder, actually, our SMEED Aerospace Engineering Sciences Department, one of our research centers here is called Bioservice Space Technologies. We've sent, uh, from Bioservice, we've actually sent over 100 uh, experiments to space, both on the space shuttle and space station, and and we actually control. We we actually talk directly to the astronauts from campus here, and that when they're doing experiments that we've sent up to station, right? So we're actually on camera, on video with them, walking them through the experiments that we designed and sent up there um, for them to do. Um, but there are so many things that they're doing, the science they're doing there, that is applicable back to our life here on Earth. Um, one example I can I can talk to is actually in medicines. 
um, there are a large number of medicines that if you uh, create, if, when you synthesize them in microgravity, it actually makes them more effective and less volume and, and, and easier to kind of just um, to get to someone, right, as far as delivery to a person. Certainly not from space station back here to them, right, but the research going on on space station to develop that medicine and figure out ways that we can we can kind of figure out what are the what are the physics and the chemistry and, and the scientific kind of processes that are involved that creates that medicine in microgravity and makes it better there. How do we then bring that knowledge back to mass production of medicines here on Earth that we can then distribute to the general population and get people healthier faster? That would be one long needle. Uh, right, it would be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the space needle, the, right? <laughs> exactly, there you go. The second space needle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just the last few minutes here. Uh, I, I, I know that they were wearing these blue space suits. Uh, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, they almost looked like the new Fantastic Four. Uh, was, <laughs> if they, was there a really need for it, or, or is it just like uh, they're thinking that they're Top Gun and they have to wear a space or a, uh, a flight suit like, you know, Maverick was jumping into the F-16? Right, exactly. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, well, they're Blue Origin, right? So it's got to be a nice yeah, blue spacesuit. So yeah, um, you know, it's you know, uh, functionally, I'm not sure. You know, they they may have been wearing sensors, you know, different uh, various things underneath there to actually you know get some information. You know, as you're, uh, it's cool. You know, one of the things we saw on one single flight, we saw the oldest person go to space ever and the youngest person to ever go to space, all on the same flight. Right, and I think that for me that was just another cool thing. Like we just took an 18-year-old and an 82-year-old up into space on the same flight, um, and to see Wally Funk be able to finally get to space after training years for it and never getting that opportunity. Right, that was that was exciting for me too. Right, just right there, and you know her expression when she got to microgravity. You know, I think we all heard that on the broadcast, and I kind of her yell. Right, that was pretty fun. Pretty fun to hear. Um, but yeah, I think largely, you know, it's got to make it look good for sure. Um, but <laughs> right. um, you know, and and uh. A flight like they had this morning, a suborbital flight, right? There's probably not too much functionality really needed out of a suit like that. Um, but one of the things we're going to see here in a, in a couple months is uh, Inspiration 4 uh, mission, which is going to launch to space on a multi-day mission on a SpaceX uh, Dragon. And, you know, those suits, they are going to have, um, you know, kind of circulated uh, venting and cooling and, you know, and, and sensors and biological That's because they're real stuff, astronauts. So, right? they, they are going to be yeah. real. Cause <laughs> they're not just going It'll up be, for three right? or four minutes. That's right. Even Neil deGrasse Tyson will uh, uh, will agree with that one, right? Yeah, so that will be an orbital orbital flight over a few days there. So, yeah, they'll, uh, I don't know exactly how many orbits they're going to do. It'll probably something in the order of something like 30 or 40 orbits there. So If you're um, if you're not long enough to, to have to use the restroom up in the uh, right? weightless, then, then you're not an astronaut. If, right, yeah, if the it's whole hour in, of... Uh, yeah, if it's not built into your suit, then, then you're not an right? astronaut. There you go, exactly. <laughs> so, I, I can say that I love the Top Gun, right? So I'm super excited for Top Gun Maverick coming out, oh, hopefully sure. later this year. So <laughs> There you yeah, go. I'm, I'm excited for that one. So no, yeah. I, I just hope there's not another uh, you know beach volleyball scene that my wife gets all right? uh, hot and bothered about. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Chris. <laughs> Thank you so much. Chris Muldrow, he's, the, uh, he's with the University of Colorado talking about uh, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and Elon Musk and all the rest and what all this space travel means to you and me. Thanks again for your time, your insight, your expertise. Appreciate it very much. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you having me on today. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Well, that was a fascinating interview. Thanks, Chris, again for all the time. I, I, sh I should have asked him about flying cars. I don't know why it escaped me. Um, flying cars aren't in space. Uh, I mean, they're up in space, uh, <laughs> just above the ground there. But they, they see, I don't think, I still don't think those those people are astronauts because they didn't really. I mean, they kind of reach space, but not. I mean, honestly, not. I, I and I and I guess if you're in a uh, flying car, you're limited in altitude to as high as you can breathe, since you're not going to have a pressurized cockpit uh, or cabin. I don't think. I would think that would make it a lot more expensive if you had a pressurized cabin maybe you do maybe you do have a pressurized cabin um for your flying car and that would uh, i guess allow you to fly a lot higher i don't know if you fly all the way to space um but yeah when i, I remember when i was flying uh, in our helicopter for over the Heyman fire years and years and years ago we used to uh routinely have to fly above fourteen thousand feet to fly over the air attack 
And so we were we were required. I think it was over fourteen thousand feet or, or fourteen and a half uh, for over twenty five minutes. You had to carry supplemental oxygen. So we would have to have that uh, oxygen tank, have the little uh, tubes come into your nose so you could have some supplemental oxygen. And you could feel it. So our, our, our base over at Centennial Airport, I think it was about 6,200 feet, 57. No, I think it was 5,700 feet. It's 5,700 feet. Um, and then we would go from there in just about 30 minutes up to about 15,000 feet. And you could feel it. Even just sitting in the helicopter, I could feel the altitude difference and the lack of oxygen, especially as I was trying to talk on the air. And and, and in that kind of a situation, usually you're, you're asked questions and you have to talk uh, off the top of your head and, and you're just, and you're just talking instead of doing a short report that only lasts for, you know, 20 seconds, you can catch your breath. But when you're talking for a longer time, you, you need more air and you could really feel it. I, I could at least really feel it when I was flying at those altitudes. So, for your flying car, either you're going to have a pressurized cabin or you're going to have to have some supplemental oxygen or fly um, lower where it's more comfortable to fly around. But, you know, even flying in the Colorado mountains, you're going to uh, find some areas where you're going to fly uh, at least at 12 or 13, maybe even 14,000 feet. Um, so find your flying car up there. We'll see how that works out. I also didn't have enough time right now. I wanted to talk about the uh, top 50 most stressful things about being in a car. Uh, I have a whole list about that stuff, and I had an interesting email from someone that was talking about, um, it, it was actually a research uh, uh, study that, that was sent to me, and I actually reached out to the authors, and they, they declined to come on the show uh, because they didn't have a, they, they said they, they weren't comfortable yet uh, uh, answering some of the questions about the study, but it was basically a study about uh, how sound inside a tunnel, not inside in your car, but uh, uh, soft music, slow music played inside a tunnel can actually make you safer when you're driving inside a tunnel, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll have that uh, info for you next time as well. Uh, so until next time, thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luba, the Traffic Guy. Be safe. And as always, happy motoring.